0: Hi, I'm Drew Beebe, the host of a new podcast from CNN called Great Big Story. It's a show about the curious side of the human experience. And I know that sounds like a lofty idea, but hear me out. Over the course of this show, we'll talk to some of the most interesting people you've ever met, from brilliant code breakers to a couple building their own artificial island. If you're itching for a good story and you're curious like I am, well, I think you might like this show. Give us a listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
1: Good evening. I'm Jim Shudo. At the end of a day in which President Trump said that we as a country are getting the coronavirus outbreak under control and a day before he attends another massive mask optional event with no social distancing. We begin tonight with hard facts showing that four months into this pandemic, this country has failed to bring it under control. And we are now on the eve of another pivotal moment for the country, a holiday weekend that one infectious disease specialist warns could be the perfect storm for a new spike in cases, on top of the one we are seeing. First, quickly, the president's claim that all is well.
2: China was way early, and they're getting under control just now. And Europe was way early, and they're getting under control. We followed them with this terrible China virus. And uh, we are, likewise, getting under control.
1: Facts, don't back that up. The president says Europe got the outbreak under control, and now so are we. Well, keeping them honest, only the first part of that claim is true. They did. The U.S. simply has not. Take a look. That is the U.S. there in green, the European Union in pink. Both lines, a few weeks apart, rose at almost identical rates. Then you see that pink line, representing Europe, falling. You see the E.U., as the president said, getting things under control. As for this country, well, the green line dips gets stuck and is now climbing again, just as steeply as before, but, to be clear, not as it was at the beginning from zero. It is now shooting up from a baseline of 25,000. And just yesterday, the nationwide daily case count topped 50,000. The data is from Johns Hopkins University, but you don't have to take it from them or from me. Here is Dr. Anthony Fauci, an expert with decades of experience handling pandemics and the most trusted member of the president's own coronavirus task force, speaking today with the Journal of the American Medical Association.
2: Right now, if you look at the number of cases, it's quite disturbing. And we're setting records practically every day of new cases in the numbers that are reported. That clearly is not the right direction.
1: To Dr. Fauci's point, Florida today reporting 10,109 new cases, a new daily record. And just look at the seven-day moving average of new cases in that state over the last four weeks. Now, let's add in the European Union to those numbers there, all of the European Union, to be clear, all 27 countries, all 446 million people. Right now, Florida, with a population of just 22 million, is averaging about twice as many new cases per day as the entire E.U. It's incredible. Now, let's look at Texas and the E.U. over the same period of time. Again, these are seven-day averages, so no single day skews the data. And, again, those two lines tell the story. Cases are rising, in fact, in 38 states here in this country. Steady are falling in just 12. Both the vice president and White House press secretary like to call what you're seeing right here in those numbers, in those facts on your screen, embers. That's the word they use. But it's not only false, it's also insulting to anyone who could read the data, or even more so has lost someone they love to the disease or might be fighting it themselves now. Today, the president used similar words to gloss over what is the truth.
2: Our health experts continue to address the temporary hotspots spots in certain cities and counties, and we're working very hard on that.
1: Uh, not at Embers in that case, he said temporary hot spots, but the fact is it's more like a wildfire. In any case, the president says it is all going great.
2: We have some areas where we're putting out The flames or the fires, and that's working out well. We're working very closely with governors, and I think it's working out very well.
1: Sadly, that's both, again, false, but also a recurring theme. The president seems deliberately unwilling to learn or acknowledge how outbreaks grow, and has been from the start.
2: When you have 15 people, and the 15 within a couple of days is going to be down to close to zero, uh, that's a pretty good job we've done.
1: I was on the 26th of February, and to the president, it was, at the time, mission accomplished, just as it's been for week after week and month after month. The same message right up to today.
2: We have it totally under control. It's one person coming in from China. We have it very well under control. Uh, We have very little problem in this country at this moment. We have it very much under control in this country. Very interestingly, uh, we've had no deaths. The uh, coronavirus, which is um, you know, very well under control in our country. And everything is under control. I mean, they're very, very cool. They've done it, and uh, they've done it well. Everything's really under control. It's something that we have uh, tremendous control of. And the crisis uh, is being handled. We are likewise getting under control.
1: The facts, the numbers belie that statement. We're not getting it under control. And the president, as we said, will once again model yet more behavior that will make things work. He's going to Mount Rushmore tomorrow in South Dakota, where he will join an estimated 7,500 people to watch a fireworks display. On Fox, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem told Laura Ingram that free masks would be available, but this is key, not required. And then she said explicitly, and we're now quoting her, we won't be social distancing. Meantime, former presidential candidate Herman Cain, who attended the president's recent no social distancing mask optional indoor rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, he is now in the hospital treated for COVID-19. And late today, the CDC put out a new forecast of how many lives might be lost in this country. It combines the work of two dozen independent institutions, projects, nearly 148,000 fatalities by the 25th of this month. That's 20,000 more Americans over just the next three weeks. Joining us now, CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, as well as William Hazeltine, uh, former Harvard researcher, author of A Family Guide to COVID, Questions and Answers for Parents, Grandparents, and Children. Uh, Professor, if I could begin with you, you look at this new projection from the CDC, uh, predicting 148,000 deaths by July 25th, uh, just over three weeks away. I wonder if that factors in fears about July 4th weekend, because the data showed that Memorial Day weekend, when folks went out, kind of felt liberated. We're now seeing the result of that in an increase in infections. What is July 4th? How does that factor in going forward the next month?
3: Well, July 4th factors in for people who are planning to get together without masks, without social distancing, indoors to celebrate. It is uh, a frightening prospect. Let me just look ahead a little bit from where we are now. If this epidemic doesn't get under control, we're not talking about 50,000 deaths. We're talking about a million deaths over the next year. This is deadly serious today. Uh, I can tell you every time I hear those numbers, every time I hear those numbers, I wince. It hurts. I know those people. Uh, I know people who are dying. Uh, We know people who are gravely ill. And another aspect of this epidemic that people aren't focused on is the wounded. We count the dying, but in any battle, you count the wounded. And a lot more, maybe five times as many people, are injured for the rest of their life because of this infection. This is deadly serious, and I hope we begin, all of us, to exert our responsibility to take it seriously.
1: Sanjay, tell me your reaction to those numbers there. I mean, part of this is math, right? Because as you have more people infected and if the positivity rate, the infection rate goes up within a larger population, that begins to grow exponentially. Do do, do you, when you look at where we are today and where those graphs are pointing, are you concerned about getting to a death toll in an order of a million Americans?
4: Well, you know, I mean, I I guess uh, one can only say that we we don't we hope that doesn't happen, Jim. I remember yeah. talking to you about this back in early March and telling you that you know we could be at uh, 150,000 people this year, and I remember you looking at me thinking, "Wow, that's that's really grim." Yeah. And 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 here we are, right? And it's it's July. So, if if the if the curves continue to go upward and they're and they're steep and they're and they're stor- sort of going into exponential growth. You know, th- this is uh, this could be really, really tragic. Uh, that's what everyone's mm-hmm. been trying to avoid. We knew this was a contagious virus. We knew that when things started to open up, there would be more people who got infected than otherwise would have. Uh, but it was a question of what are we willing to tolerate? The problem is we did not do what we needed to do so far, and yeah. we're still not. That's the thing that concerns mm-hmm. me more than anything else. Even at this point, we are still minimizing the problem, which has been the the unifying... Problem all along is that we minimized it. That led to poor testing, not implementing mask rules, not you know sh- uh, shutting down too late, opening up too early. You name it; it's all because we minimized this problem.
1: Yeah, uh, and, and we have a president who won't recognize the data bef- before him, Dr. Hazeltine. As this virus uh, has mutated, uh, some researchers say it's becoming more transmissible, but not necessarily more deadly. What are we learning That's about right. the, the virus as, it's, as it is, exists today in this country?
3: Well, what we have seen is the virus, people know that as viruses trans, go from one place to another, they change a little bit. But what was concerning is a one particular mutation started to spread and took over the rest of the world. It took over China, it took over Europe, and spread all throughout the United States. What students of my students actually looked at that in great detail and discovered that the envelope of that protein, the outside, the spike protein, is a little bit different, which makes the virus 10 times more transmissible than it used to be. That helps explain why it's spreading so fast. It takes one-tenth the amount of virus it did at the beginning of this epidemic. Now, you ask another part of the question, does this make it more lethal? Not that we can tell. It means it gets around better, but so far, thank God, it doesn't mean that it causes more serious disease.
1: Sanjay, progress, we don't wanna get ahead of ourselves, but progress in the search for a vaccine, some entering the smaller trials at this point. Uh, How hopeful are you that you do have a workable vaccine, perhaps by the end of the year, beginning of next year, the the hopeful uh, timeline that even Dr. Fauci has talked about, And, and does a changing virus mean that the vaccine would not be as effective?
4: Uh, the answer to the last part of the question, the, if the, the mutation thing, I, I don't think so. I don't think it's mutated enough to, to potentially make a vaccine more problematic. No problem. With regard to the first part of your question, Jim, uh, I, I'll preface by saying this. Uh, this has been a difficult story to cover as a reporter. Um, so much of okay. what we've learned about the vaccine development has come in the form of press releases, oftentimes from the companies themselves, or what we call preprints, uh, you know, things that have not actually been peer-reviewed. There's only been one peer-reviewed you know, paper that we have found out of China with regard to vaccine mm-hmm. development. So that's made this difficult to cover. Having said that, I am optimistic. Uh, and that's in part because I talk to these researchers on a regular basis. I understand where they are with their trials. Uh, we won't know until we actually have a vaccine. And there's obviously been diseases and, and infections for which we've never developed vaccines, such as HIV. But I, I yeah. think, you, know, you heard Francis Collins come out today head of the NIH, and basically say, we're going to have this by the end of the year. I, I, I was surprised that they're being that sort of dogmatic. Dr. Fauci has said the same thing. So certainly you have to, to weigh that into to our optimism. Everybody, just about everybody on the planet wants this, um, and, and I'm optimistic, but I'd like to see the data. I'm still surprised yeah. that we haven't seen a lot of data around this.
1: Sanjay, Professor Hazeltine, good to have you both on tonight. Sobering Sobering commentary, but, but it, it's good to have folks who know what they're talking about. Thanks very much. Next, a closer look at how this is hitting hospitals, and more as well from Dr. Fauci. His answer when asked whether he thinks we are winning or losing this battle. Also, the politics of a president who would rather fight a war on behalf of statues of dead people, some of them traitors against their own country, than real live Americans. David Axelrod, Maggie Haberman, they'll join us tonight on 360.
5: America's getting back to work. In this new economy, your business needs every advantage to succeed. You need to be smart. And smart companies run on the world's number one cloud business system, NetSuite by Oracle. With NetSuite, you'll have visibility and control over every part of your business, your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. It's everything you need, all in one place. Whether you're doing a million in sales or hundreds of millions, NetSuite lets you expertly keep track of every penny. It gives you the agility to compete with anyone, work from anywhere, and run your whole company right from your phone. Over 20,000 companies trust NetSuite to make it happen. Make yours one of them. Learn more by visiting netsuite.com ac360. From there, you can schedule a tour of NetSuite and get their free guide, Seven Actions Businesses Need to Take Now. It's chock full of the top strategies executives are using as America reopens for business. Get your free guide and product tour now at netsuite.com slash ac AC 360.
1: Welcome back. What the president today called temporary hotspots, the CDC's new forecast tonight, says are contributing to a projected death toll of nearly 148,000 Americans in just a matter of weeks, by the 25th of this month, in fact. We'll be joined once again shortly by our medical and public health professionals. First, though, a closer look at how this is all unfolding at the ground level in the states and hospitals that are now getting hammered really by this outbreak. Here's CNN's Jason Carroll. Say
6: hi. Just today, Florida hit a record high, 10,000 new positive cases in the state. Tonight, this message from Coronavirus task Force member, you, Dr. Dr. Deborah Burks to all young Floridians.
1: So we're asking for everyone under 40 that if you were in a gathering, please go and get tested. Please wear a mask
6: wearing a mask. is In, in Texas, Governor Greg Abbott has this issued an executive order requiring Texans in counties with 20 or more COVID-19 cases to wear face coverings in public. Doctors there are overwhelmed by the number of COVID patients, so many in some parts, there are wait lists for ventilators.
7: I got 10 calls,
1: all of whom young people who otherwise would be excellent candidates to be able to put on ECMO. They, They're so sick that if they don't get put on, they don't get that support, they're probably gonna die. I had three beds.
6: At least 23 states have changed or paused reopening plans due to spikes in COVID cases. The nation's top disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, told the BBC some states may have reopened too soon. In
2: the United States, even in the most strict lockdown, only about 50% of the country locked down. That allowed the perpetuation of the outbreak uh, that we never did get under very good control.
6: Another top U.S. health official testified before the House today and said the increase in numbers across the country is due to new cases, not new testing.
0: There is no question that the more testing you get, the more you will uncover. But we do believe this is a real increase in cases because the percent positivities are going up. So this is real increases in cases.
6: For now, New Jersey is continuing some of its reopening efforts. Casinos opened their doors today. But the thing that Dr. Fauci was was bluntly asked today if the U.S. is winning the
5: war against coronavirus. You've been losing this battle, haven't you, recently?
2: Admittedly, yes, we have. We cannot give up because it appears that we're losing the battle.
1: Jason Carroll joins us now. Jason, uh, one of the more alarming stories, uh, uh, what are known as, quote, COVID parties, unquote. Uh, Tell us what they are, because they sound insane.
6: Yeah, I mean, it's really disturbing. I mean, you look at what happened in Rockland County, just about an hour outside of New York City, where investigators are looking into a cluster of COVID cases linked to a party, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where city officials say that they've been holding COVID parties there. And apparently, Jim, what happens is you go there, you get a cash prize if you can prove that you were the first person to contract the virus after going to the party. And so what's very clear throughout all of this is that despite all the messaging that's out there showing just how deadly, just how dangerous this virus is, even with young people, it's just not getting that message. It's just not getting across like it needs TO BE.
1: AND WE HAVE STORIES ON THIS BROADCAST AND OTHERS ABOUT YOUNG PEOPLE HOSPITALIZED IN dire, DIRE CONDITION. FOLKS, IF YOU'RE LISTENING AT HOME, DON'T GO TO THOSE PARTIES. JASON Carroll, THANKS VERY MUCH. BACK NOW WITH US, DR. SANJAY GUPTA, PROFESSOR WILLIAM HAZELTINE. YOU KNOW, SANJAY, INTERESTING HERE, BECAUSE YOU, EVEN WITH THE PRESIDENT BEING INTRANSIGENT, RIGHT, ON THE SCOPE OF THIS PROBLEM. You are hearing slightly different messaging coming from folks in the administration. Giroir there acknowledging that the increase in cases is not just about testing, as the president has claimed. He's talked about the positivity rate going up, which which is a fact. Mm. And even the president, you know, now saying he doesn't oppose masks, at least. Do you see the slightest move of recognition there from the White House and the administration on the scope of this problem right now?
4: Uh, Yes, and I think that you're seeing some of that, for example, in Texas, with the governor talking about uh, now Mm -hmm. and uh, mandating the masks as well. I think, Jim, the the thing about it is that, I mean, I think you could predict at this point uh, that even in Florida, they'll come around at some point. I I think it's become a question of what's it going to take? How much are they willing to tolerate? Uh, before they go ahead and do what everybody knows needs to be done. That, that's the thing. Yeah. Uh, masks, increased testing. I mean, just come yeah. right out and say that indoor settings where a lot of people cluster together, close together for long durations, that can't happen right now, not with the way the numbers are going. And this is, you know, this is based on real data and based on success uh, of these strategies in other countries. Again, Jim, you and I have talked about this, but in South Korea, and there's plenty of examples around the world, South Korea, they never even went into a lockdown, and yet they have fewer than 300 people who've died. Why? Because they employed the strategies that we're trying to get people Mm -hmm. to employ in this country.
1: And and as a result, they limited the economic damage. I mean, that's a thing that gets lost in this sometimes. Uh, Professor Hazeltine, talking about focus on young people, Dr. Deborah Birx today, she's requested all Florida residents... 40 and under, have been to a gathering in the last four weeks to, to, to get tested. Uh, tell us about the focus now, the concern about young key people more getting infected and being a nexus for spreading uh, this infection.
3: Well, thank you for the question. Recent data has shown that the most avid superspreaders are young people and children. We used to think that wasn't mm-hmm. true, but now people have done the studies. So young people are the majority of the super spreaders. They can infect very large numbers of people. The second thing to know is recent studies have showed that even though somebody may feel entirely well, if you do a chest x-ray, up to 60% have ground glass opacities in their lungs. That means they're not very well. I talked a little bit before about the wounded. There may be long-term health consequences. It's a mm-hmm. little bit like smoking when you're young you get it when you're older these wow. people are not immune not only are a lot of them getting sick and filling up the hospitals as we heard earlier in the program tonight but they are inflicting long-term damage as well as infecting their friends their families and the whole society this is not healthy for our country
1: mm. quite a warning important to hear uh, thanks again to you both professor hazeltine sanjay gupta Uh, We appreciate you coming on tonight. Thanks,
3: sir. You're welcome. Thank you.
1: And up next this hour, why the pandemic does not seem to interest President Trump, but pushing cultural war buttons certainly does. We're going to speak about absent leadership, uh, Confederate monuments as well, with David Axelrod and The New York Times' Maggie Haberman. That's next. While President Trump has shown no interest in addressing the rising case numbers and hospitalizations from the pandemic. In fact, he's deliberately played them down. One area that does appear to interest him is pushing cultural divisions to attempt to woo voters. Today, he harped again on protesters and monuments, tweeting a video about how, quote, lawlessness has been allowed to prevail. It comes just days after he threatened to hold up a must-pass defense authorization bill that would, among other things, rename military installations which had been named after Confederate generals weeks ago. He called these bases, quote, part of a great American heritage. According to three people familiar with his comments, Trump has brushed off efforts to address historic racial inequality as something, quote, his people, unquote, won't care about. Listen to those words. They're important. Joining us now, former senior advisor to President Obama and CNN senior political commentator David Axelrod and New York Times White House correspondent and CNN political analyst Maggie Haberman. Maggie, you've covered this president for some time. You've covered the White House. Uh, Clearly, he wants to leave the outbreak behind him, uh, even as the numbers rise. Is there anyone in that building who is telling him honestly, directly that he can't do that?
8: there are many people who are telling him that honestly jim i think what has become clear to people or should have by now is this president wants to govern a certain way and wants to run his reelection effort a certain way and that does not relate to talking about the coronavirus unless it's about describing uh, his administration's response in glowing terms that that just don't comport with reality, certainly for the the first many weeks uh, as the pandemic Mm -hmm. was growing. Mm -hmm. The president wants to have culture wars. He wants to fight on on white grievance. And he wants to have a discussion around Mm -hmm. race that he thinks appeals to his base of supporters. And he has resisted all suggestions that he do it a different way.
1: David, those words, his people, right? I mean, they're very revealing. And President Trump is often, almost all the time, very transparent, right, in in what he's trying to do and who he's speaking to. Let's say you've run a lot of campaigns. Let's say you're his campaign advisor here. Is there any evidence that there's an audience for this, right, that that, the denial works even as the virus spreads?
7: You know, I think, Jim, that his, his uh, desire, and this has been true from the beginning, was to try and make the campaign again about something else. And yes, he's a, he's a cultural warrior, and that's a big part of it. The other was the economy. And uh, one of the reasons yeah. he was in such denial for six weeks at the beginning of this crisis was he didn't want anything that would disrupt economic progress because uh, that was what he was going to run on. And uh, that was the same reason that he walked away from this battle in the middle and said, now it's time to reopen. We're, you know, we're, we're experiencing the impact of that, uh, of those decisions by governors uh, across the nation who are following his lead uh, now. But he still seems uh, to want to deny at a time when the country really needs two things. They need determination and they, they need someone who's going to be president to the entire country. And that neither of those things our strengths mm-hmm. of uh, of Donald Trump. So, uh, you know, I think that he is digging a hole for himself uh, politically here. Because, as said from the beginning, you cannot spin a pandemic, and mm-hmm. and yet he seems to think that he can dictate the terms of the debate here.
1: Yeah, he's he's certainly still trying. You know, it was notable Maggie Haberman to see uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott change. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only on facing up to the numbers in his state as as the infections grow, but also on the response and mandating masks and making the point that that he's doing that because you need that kind of mitigation effort in order to get the economy going. And that's what experts have said from the beginning. And, frankly, you look at other countries, they got that. Again, I mean, I always ask you this. Is someone in the White House saying, sir, if you want your economy back, you got to take care of the outbreak first. It's it, it, it's it's a pre- prerequisite for this.
8: There are some people who are saying that um, it is not the overwhelming majority of people. When it comes to masks, in particular, though, there are people who are telling him uh, that masks need to be mandated. That he needs to do more to try to encourage. You have seen the politics around this change. Conservative uh, news hosts have been talking about mask wearing, and I think some of them are hoping that will have an impact on the president's opinion. But to your point, Jim, there is no way to separate the virus from uh, the economy, yeah. though hand in hand. And that has been the issue with trying to turn these into two separate issues the entire time. And as you said, we are seeing the impact of that now.
1: David, the president, I I I, I, think
7: that is such an important point uh, because the president's assumption is that people will credit him for the economy before the virus. They will understand that the virus created the economic problem and that it's temporary and that he is the one based on his performance before the virus who can rebuild the economy. But what isn't in that equation is the recognition that the reason we're in this economic mess is in part because of the tactics that he employed or the the denial that Mm -hmm. consumed him uh, before the, you know, in the early uh, part of the virus and now in the latter part uh, of the virus. And it's really going to uh, his uh, competence, uh, which is not a place where he wants to be uh, going into his his re-election.
1: Yeah, and listen, when people are dying or someone you know, someone in your circle, et cetera, it's impossible for people to miss, of course, the very real effects of this. Maggie DeMar, the president, he's going to Mount Rushmore, uh, you know, setting a lot of negative examples, right? Uh, the governor there saying there will be no social distancing, for instance, okay. at, at this event. He, he's had to back off on uh, a rally, for instance, in Alabama. He didn't have a good turnout in, in Tulsa here. But, mm-hmm. heck, we're four months from election. I mean, is, is he going to... Sort of, sort of bulldoze forward uh, with with the Trump style rally plan as he tries to win reelection
8: that is not that he might eventually but that is certainly not the plan for the month of July campaign advisors this morning met and set what what was described to me as a pretty aggressive schedule at least for his White House duties but as we know in every election year in particular they tend to sort of blend into one uh, that does not call for large-scale rallies, indoor rallies, like what we saw in Tulsa and what have traditionally been these Trump rallies. There might be some in smaller settings, in at least partially outdoor settings at some point this month. Um, But officials are very, very scalded by what happened in Tulsa and the Mm -hmm. fallout.
1: Notable, notable there. Uh, Maybe a little scared about their jobs. Uh, Maggie Haberman, David Axelrod, so good to have both of you. Uh, Thanks so much. JUST AHEAD, MORE ON WHAT WE TOUCHED ON AT THE TOP OF THE HOUR, WHY EUROPE IS BEATING THE VIRUS, AND IT IS, AND THE U.S. IS NOT, AND THE ONE CHART THAT EXPLAINS WHY THE EU IS BANNING AMERICAN TRAVELERS NOW. EARLIER TODAY, JOE BIDEN SLAMMED PRESIDENT TRUMP FOR HIS HANDLING OF THE PANDEMIC. AND AS EVIDENCE, HE CITED THE EU BAN AGAINST TRAVELERS FROM THE U.S. IT'S NO QUESTION Why the EU would place such a ban on Americans, just look at this chart we showed you at the top of the program. The U.S. and the EU, they followed a very similar trajectory until March, when the number of new cases in the EU, they came down, the U.S. going in the opposite direction, way up sharply, more than 47,000 cases just today in the U.S. versus less than 10,000 in all of the EU. It has a bigger population, by the way, uh, by 100 million people. Joining me now, Tomas Pueyo, vice president of growth at online educational platform Course Hero. Tomas has gained a following since the pandemic began for the way he synthesized vast amounts of data into compelling charts that really explain uh, how this is all going down. Tomas, so good to have you on here. And that Europe to U.S. connection is very telling. Uh, Tell us what they did right that the U.S. did not do and, and sadly is not doing right now.
9: Well, there's a couple of things. Um, First, they had Italy. That was a dramatic example of what happens if you don't control the virus. Uh, And so all Mm. the countries around were also having very heavy um, um, outbursts. And they uh, really, really took this seriously, except for the United Kingdom. And then Sweden also took it in a different way. But most of the European Union was very serious about this, very heavy lockdowns, everywhere until it was controlled, and only then did they reopen. That's the first thing. The second thing that was very different is that we consider the United States as one country compared to each one of the countries of the European Union. That's not the right way to think about it, because the United States decided not to make decisions at the federal level. And so the better mm. comparison is actually every country in the, United, in, the United, in the European Union, which with every state, in the united states and then you can see really a pattern emerge where for yeah. example states like hawaii vermont or new hampshire have done a substantially better job european level job whereas uh, arizona for example has yeah. uh, 50 times more cases than hawaii
1: one point you make specific to, to to the approach is that the the eu banned travel between countries very quickly and they yes. enforce that ban uh You've had some talk here of you know, required quarantine, say, New York for, for a bit is now talking them from states that have high rates, that for a while Florida was saying, we're not gonna let New Yorkers come down here. But the fact is that was not enforced. Are, are you saying that to really get this under control in the US, you have to ban travel within states and enforce it somehow?
9: That's right, that's the key I think that uh, is unlocked when thinking about the states as countries. When you have that mm-hmm. tool in, in Europe and then you can really be uh, very thoughtful about not letting people uh, in from outside, but also inside of the country. Like, this country is very centralized like France or very decentralized like Spain or Germany, and all of them shut down travel inside of the country. And here in the United States, mm. we're uh, shy to do even that. There's Hawaii yeah. and Alaska, they not only did it, but enforced it, but outside of that, very, very little. We're talking about the tri-state doing that now, but it's not enforced. It's recommended. Like if you're coming from Florida, are you really going to, uh, to wait for two weeks in an apartment before you can go out to New York?
1: Mm-hmm. No. 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 It's, it's just don't. not happening. The, the U.S., frankly, lacks a national policy, right? There are no national directives, for instance, on masks. And, and you hear state leaders, local leaders, many begging for that, right? But the president clearly not going to do it. He's going to leave it up to states. Based on the data you're looking at, does that work? Can a country get a handle on it with a sort of piecemeal strategy and everybody you know, handling it in a different way at different speeds?
9: The, there is no other country that decided not to manage the coronavirus at the highest level of sovereignty. There's not. Mm-hmm. And so we really need to think about it in terms of who is the most sovereign here. And that's the one making the decisions. If California, if Hawaii uh, are forced. TO BEHAVE LIKE COUNTRIES, THEN THEY NEED TO BEHAVE LIKE COUNTRIES. AND IF THEY WANT TO KEEP THEIR, IN THE CASE OF VERMONT OR NEW HAMPSHIRE, FOR EXAMPLE, KEEP THEIR LOW PREVALENCE, THEY NEED TO BEHAVE LIKE THEY WERE COUNTRIES. THEY CANNOT LET uh, CASES FROM OTHER STATES uh, INFECTING ALL THE HARD WORK THAT THEY'VE DONE.
1: FINAL QUESTION BEFORE YOU GO. I'M JUST CURIOUS, HOW IS THE WORLD LOOKING AT THE U.S. RIGHT NOW uh, AS THE CASES CONTINUE TO GO UP? Uh, I mean, really, the only other countries in that category are Brazil and Russia, whereas countries like South Korea, you know, the EU, have gotten this under control. Is the U.S. an example to anybody right now?
9: The U.S. is adding one Wuhan a day. we mm. were in total 50,000 cases wow. in Wuhan. That's what we're having every day now in the United States. That's giving you a sense of what the rest of the world thinks about the United States. Brazil has a lot of cases, obviously. Russia is not telling everything. Mexico is not doing really well. So there's a lot of countries that are not doing really well and didn't take this very seriously. There's other countries like India that's trying very, very hard, and yet, unfortunately, the cases there are going up. The United States is the only country, uh, very developed country with a lot of money, that uh, is not uh, up to what all the other developed countries have been able to do.
1: Well, that's a sobering assessment, but facts back it up. Tomas Puehl, thanks so much. Thank you. Still to come this hour, a movie tribute to the real-life U.S. heroes of war based on the bestseller by our colleague and good friend Jake Tapper. He's going to join us just ahead.
8: Symptoms of overactive bladder or OAB may be bothersome. As many as 46 million Americans 40 years of age or older have reported symptoms of OAB. I got to the point where I was constantly having to plan my outings around being able to go to the bathroom. It felt like my bladder was calling the shots. Many people like her decided enough was enough. It was time to talk to a doctor. We spoke to a few of them to hear their stories in their own words. Listen in at OABmed.com and hear how they discovered Mirbetric Mirabegron.
5: Mirbetric is a prescription medicine for adults used to treat OAB symptoms of urgency, frequency, and leakage. Do not take if you have a known allergic reaction to Mirbetric or its ingredients. Myrbetric may increase blood pressure. Tell your doctor right away if you have trouble emptying your bladder or have a weak urine stream. Myrbetric may cause serious allergic reactions like swelling of the face, lips, throat, or tongue, or trouble breathing. If experienced, stop taking and tell your doctor right away. Myrbetric may interact with other medicines. Tell your doctor if you are taking thiorridazine, melaryl, and melaryl S. Fleconide, tambocore, propafenone, rhythmalt, digoxin-linoxin, or solophenosin succinate vesicare. Tell your doctor if you have liver or kidney problems. Common side effects include increased blood pressure, common cold or flu symptoms, sinus irritation, dry mouth, urinary tract infection, bladder inflammation, back or joint pain, constipation, dizziness, and headache. See our ad in Reader's Digest magazine or call 1-855-697-2387.
8: Hear real stories about how Betric can help OAB symptoms at OABmed.com and ask your doctor if it could help you. That's OABmed.com.
1: Welcome back. Let's check in now with Chris to see what he's working on for Cuomo prime time. Of course, at the top of the hour, Chris, my friend, what do you got?
10: Well, my brother, you are the historian between us, that's for sure. But I do ask the people to watch at the top of the show because I'm giving a little food for thought about uh, mm-hmm. the notion that the answers to the questions that ail us right now are found right in the pledge that we celebrate this weekend uh, with our independence mm-hmm. holiday weekend. So uh, I ask people to watch that. We also then have the former CDC director, Tom Frieden, to give us the good, bad and ugly of the current state and play. And there is good. And there is bad, and there is ugly. So we'll go through that. Also, we have the attorney for Mary Trump on the show tonight. Mm. Uh, I'm dying to know what they don't want us to know. So we'll see what the attorney will tell us. Uh, We're also going to talk to Mayor Lori Lightfoot right before Independence Day, Uh, obviously Mm. mayor of Chicago. How uh, are they working to keep things calm on this celebration weekend? And how does she explain the crime and death in her city?
1: Mm. All good questions, and I love that you're looking at history for positive lessons. A lot of talk about history right now. Uh, Let's look for the positive lessons in our country's history. Thanks, Chris. We'll see you in a few minutes. Up next this hour, CNN's Jake Tapper. He's going to join us uh, to talk about the bestseller that's come to life on the big screen. It's a powerful story. Given the headlines lately, there's, of course, new attention on the war in Afghanistan. But my colleague, seen as Jake Tapper, has always been focused on the The Outpost will be available on demand, as well as in select theaters. It is based on Jake's best-selling book, The Outpost, an Untold Story of American val- Valor. Uh, if you haven't read it, if you haven't seen the story, the movie tells the real-life story of combat outpost Keating, one of the bloodiest battles of the war.
2: Everyone's worried about the new CEO Okay, how so? He doesn't know what he's doing. He's scared. That's obvious. He doesn't leave the talk except to take a sh. Even then he does it with an escort. I carry his piss Every other day to the burn pit The men call him Broward the Coward
3: Carter take a seat Take a seat Carter. Come on You ever heard of uh... Captain Bostick or Colonel Fenty?
5: No, sir.
3: They're two commanders who lost their lives in this hole before Keating and Yaskis. Okay. This commander is a 37-year-old captain who has seen a whole lot of death in Iraq before he got here. He's probably seen more firefights than you've seen in the movies.
1: Uh, Jake Tapper joins us now. Jake, listen, I I read the book. I look forward to seeing the film. It's such a powerful story. It's also a sad story. The lives lost, uh, and I've seen you comment on this before. It's it's very personal, of course, to the families. I'm curious. uh, You worked with them. You've had contact with them. How do they receive this going out on the screen?
0: Well, we had a special screening uh, last October, which was the 10-year anniversary of the big battle uh, of October 3rd, Mm. 2009, and we invited a number of the veterans and the troops and the Gold Star families, uh, everybody who had a a loved one whose death is depicted in the film. And to be honest, it was nerve-wracking. The the movie's gotten uh, really good reviews this week, but but Rod Lurie, the director, and I were most worried about the the reviews and the criticism from the the Gold Star families and the troops who served there. And um, to a person, they thought that the movie honored their loved one. And we were really nervous mm-hmm. because, first of all, you know, how do you recreate such a story in a film? Second of all, to see your loved one who's no longer with you depicted. And then third of all, mm-hmm. to see the, their death depicted would be harrowing. But they, they all understood the yeah. sentiment. And, yes, it is, it is a sad story in some ways, Jim, but also... Uh, it's a heroic story of a bunch of men who, mm-hmm. facing un- incredible odds, uh, band together and, and, and push back an enemy.
1: No question. I mean, the heroism there, I mean, it's inspiring. Uh, the, the timing of this, of course, at a time when there's renewed focus, you know, probably overdue to some degree, of course, right, on the ongoing war in Afghanistan. For folks at home who may not have been paying attention in recent years. What will they learn from the movie about this war?
0: Well, I think they'll see uh, depictions of what it is that a lot of our troops over there have been doing in terms of trying to win over Afghans, trying to win over uh, individual towns and villages, convince them to not join the insurgency, to convince them to, to join with the U.S. and the Afghan government for electric plants and schools and things that could help them. What you uh, and others who cover the military know is called COIN or counterinsurgency. What that actually means, nation building, hearts and minds. Uh, And you you see that depicted in the film. And then ultimately you see how difficult a job it is to do such a thing uh, in these very remote and dangerous outposts.
1: No question, uh, and at a time when we're talking about withdrawing those forces, right, ending the war. Jake, I know you put your, a lot of heart, uh, blood, sweat, and tears into this. Uh, thanks for coming on tonight. Again, it's called The Outposts. Uh, Jake Tapper, thanks so much. The news continues, of course, so I'm going to hand it over to my colleague Chris Cuomo p- Crime Time. Starts right now.